0: Uh, We've got three more presentations. Uh, We're getting into uh, the level of uh, science, tools, and techniques. We've uh, we've set the scene, and uh, we've got some urgency. We've got some options. And now we've got some tools and techniques to to, to consider. Um, The first speaker is Alison Elvin from Natural Capital Limited. Um, Alison uh, has been passionately involved both personally and professionally with the interface between sustainable agriculture, production, and biodiversity conservation for many decades. Decades, Working as an environmental consultant and as a rural educator, Alison is in awe of the complexities and innate resilience of our landscapes and recognises that her lifetime work in this field barely scratches the surface uh, of what needs to be understood. Uh, Focusing on local land, uh, local native Uh, pasture species. This talk outlines both strategies. Uh, uh, These remarkable plants have evolved to ensure their survival through changing environmental conditions and their invaluable contribution to biodiversity and agricultural production. Uh, So Alison will be talking about native grasses and pastures as natural adapters in that context.
1: Thank you. First of all, I've got to make sure everybody can hear. Is that okay? Please let me know if it's not during my talk. Thank you. I was just thinking at the beginning of today, when we paid acknowledgement to the traditional owners, past and present, that I would like to add to that an acknowledgement to all the plants in this region and animals in this region, past and present too, because there's a huge interconnection between the people and the plants and animals that live together in the environment. And I just thought that they also need acknowledgement. Uh, I'm here today to basically try and sing the song of native pastures. And I'm deliberately using the word pastures rather than grasses or grasslands. Because although we have some high conservation value native temperate grasslands left, there's not a lot. Um, But we do have a lot of native pastures left across the landscape in private hands with varying degrees of species diversity and complexity. And it is my belief that we can, if we encourage the people who are the land managers of those native pastures, we can increase their conservation value while also increasing their ability to adapt to the climate change which is already with us. And I believe that the native pastures and the suite of the grasses and the forbs their mosses, their lichens, they're the storytellers that are telling us what's happened to this landscape through time and how they've survived change since the beginning of Gondwana. It is an extraordinary story. And as you said at the very beginning, there is so little knowledge, so little knowledge. We've hardly scratched the surface of what we know about the the engine room of our ecosystems, the grasses and the suite of plants that live with them. Um, And I want to say, well, why are they important? Why should we care about the grasses? And I was interested in one of the talks before morning tea, that we think of the forests, we think of the wetlands, we think of all the big things, and we forget that they're underpinned by the grasses and their accompanying symbiotic plants that keep that soil there, that keep that soil biota alive and going. And they're just absolutely ignored almost all the time. So I'm not here to try today to convince people to conserve them, because I know that many in land care are doing that. What I'm here today is to try and explain the little bit of knowledge that we have so far as to how resilient they are to environmental changes, including uh, all the farming impacts that have happened and urban impacts that have happened since White Settlement and what we can do about it. Um, I was really interested too in one of the early slides uh, presented which talked about pasture growth and talked about how pasture growth declines uh, as temperatures increase and rainfall drops. We didn't mention what kind of pasture and I bet it was exotic pasture. If you were to look at indigenous grass pasture, you see that as the temperature climbs and the rainfall drops, it actually increases in the amount of species and the abundance of biomass that it produces. But we are focusing over and over again on exotic species that we bring into this country in terms of our agricultural production, whereas we are not looking at what we already have. The research to date suggests that we have about a (coughs) 1,000 species of native grasses in this country, and we have only studied 70 of those across Australia. That's not many. And as somebody whose business relies on collecting the seed and trying to sow and germinate the seed of native grasses among other species, we have been absolutely gobsmacked at the lack of information available and the lack of research through the times of European settlement in this country. Um, We know that indigenous people managed grasses with fire and with grazing management for tens of thousands of years. We also know that these species probably originated in the early Gondwana continent and that they emigrated with Australia as it drifted north. So we are talking hundreds of millions of years that these plants have been on this continent. They have survived sea level rise and sea level fall. They have survived extraordinary environmental changes, and they're still here today. And yet, we have done everything within our power across most of our landscape to get rid of them. Just last week, I was out on a property just outside the ACT border where the person was just about to get a helicopter, a light plane in to spray out that red rubbish on the hill. The red rubbish on the hill was a glass called red grass. Mm-hmm. And it was seen as completely and utterly useless, although all of his cattle were fat and shiny and they'd been eating the red rubbish. Because an agronomist had advised that it was not appropriate to leave on the hillside. To spray it out, kill it, and sow clover and, and exotic rye grass. There would be another... Another grass of, that, that survives everything in this country would have been gone from that little local area. Um, we've spent a hundred years researching phalaris. We've spent virtually no years researching our own native grasses. What do our native grasses and our native pastures do? Within a native pasture, there are usually a, a wide suite of species. And you can see on this very first photograph I had the fortune to go to a farm uh, south of Canberra, probably 100 k south of Canberra, where it had never been uh, ploughed and they had never got rid of a native pasture. And it was fourth generation, which is very, very rare. And you can see all of that green is a grass called Microlina, a grass. Most of you would know that. That grows in the better soil. As you come out of the deeper, wetter soil, you will see that there's tussocks, there's corkscrew grass, and so on. The person that owns that farm is now in their 80s, and they got the top uh, award last year at Royal Sydney Show for their fleece and for their carcass weight on their cattle. Now, I know Langham here is is not about farming, but it is uh, uh, aligned, aligned and affiliated with farming, and it's terribly important to realise that that landscape and the fertility that comes from those grasses and the productivity is terribly important. Can you see any erosion in that photograph? No. Can you see any bare ground? Can you see any weeds? What I'm trying to say is this is a property covered in native grasses and the small forbs that grow amongst them, grazed for four generations. There is no erosion on that land. There is no weeds. There is no bare ground. And the waterways have returned to a chain of ponds waterways throughout the property. It was wonderful to see what is possible. So just that's a, that's a similar property. And astonishingly, they even leave all their dead trees in, pad, in, in paddocks for habitat. OK, this is more familiar uh, view, probably, of, um, of our country in dry, spherical woodlands, where you've got joycea tussocks on the very poor soil. You've got a great tongue of themida grass, kangaroo grass, coming down the centre, there's hoa tussocks running along the creek, and in amongst it, there are a wide range of other species. On that hillside alone, I counted 110 species of grassland plants. That is holding that country together. It survives 40 degree days. It survives 10 years of drought, 20 years of drought. It's had a fire through it. It has survived. What is it that allows these native grasses to survive? And one of the things that has amazed me, and when I went through all the scientific literature I could find about the genetics of native grasses, I was absolutely blown away. Because we're all very keen to have provenance species planted in the right place at the right time, and rightly so, because of their genetics that's appropriate to time and place. However. The research at the moment shows that the few native grass species that have been researched actually self-pollinate. They don't cross-pollinate, but they have more than two sets of chromosomes. We're also used to everything having two sets of chromosomes, one from the male, one from the female. Apparently, a kangaroo grass can have up to six sets of chromosomes, which it can turn on or off, depending on the environmental stresses that that plant is undergoing. Um, Weeping grass, Microlina, has four sets of chromosomes. Red grass and blue grass can have flower spikelets, so you've got one one tussock of grass with spikes coming out, and when tested for the genetics of the seed on the one plant, some had two chromosomes, some had four, and some had six. The genetic variability is apparently absolutely extraordinary and it has hardly been touched in terms of research. Um, Wallaby grass, I'm not used to its new name, the new name's only been around about eight years, anyway, um, it can be a diploid, a tetraploid, and somewhere in between using triploid bridges between plants in one paddock. And the researchers found that in, within one paddock of let's say 10 or 15 species of native grasses, there can be such a range of genetic variability that they don't really know what to make of it. Because it goes against what we think of provenance being determined by some degree of geographic isolation. And yet, for some reason, our plants are able to adapt constantly as the environment changes. Research that's been done on a large, uh, large areas of naked grassland um, shows that in any one season, one species will dominate more than others. That the seed will be there in the soil, but it won't necessarily germinate and grow unless its season's correct. So it's constantly resilient to the changes within its own environment. One of the other things that's uh, really interesting, and this was by a a, a long research article, says that it's currently believed that the genetic diversity amongst populations of the same species of native grass is much more related to specific environmental stresses and not on the distance placed between them. To me, if that isn't an argument for the ability to adapt to climate change, I don't know what is and it goes against so much of certainly what I was taught um, about the interplay between genetics and evolution. As you would also know, native grasses have a, they can either be a C3 grass or a C4 grass. They were discussed earlier before morning tea. C4 grass, as you would probably all know, is a grass that is a summer active grass. It's a perennial. All Australian native grasses, bar a few by the way, are perennial another reason to try and have them growing everywhere. They cover the ground year in, year out. The C4 is dormant in the winter and is active in the summer. I sing the praises of C4 grasses over and over again. Let me see what I've got here. Ah, yes, there's one of my favourite C4 grasses. This is down the Hume Highway near Tarkata. Now, sadly, because I'm not a very good photographer, you can't, up, up above, that's kangaroo grass across the front of the slide. A great swathe of kangaroo grass on a tiny little bit of what's left of a roadside cutting. Above it is the farmed paddock. And that farmed paddock was wall to wall St John's Ward. And all that was between the St John's Ward weed and the roadside cutting was five wires of fence. In other words, nothing. But the different ways that the land was managed. I got out of the car, I was so astonished. I got out of the car and walked through all that kangaroo grass to see if I could find any St. John's wort growing down the bottom between it. I couldn't. That's not to say it doesn't happen. It does. But as something to push back weeds in summer, you cannot beat a great sword of kangaroo grass. Just wonderful stuff. see what are Oh, yeah, that's another one of kangaroo grass that had been burnt in the winter in a cool burn. Uh, on a farm that I used to own, Uh, and that's some of the forbs coming up in spring. Uh, As soon as the kangaroo grass thatch was burnt in a cool burn, there were just so many forbs that came up, and that's run into a dam. That just filtered the water magnificently as it ran into the dam. So I'll come back to that slide in a moment. So if you... most C4 plants like kangaroo grass, were considered to be useless by the early agricultural farmers and settlers. So a great deal of trouble was taken to eradicate them. They were just seen as that you couldn't fatten a lamb, you couldn't fatten a cow, useless stuff, let's get rid of them. Tragically, it's very hard to find great swathes of kangaroo grass any longer. It's very hard to find great swathes of red grass, of windmill grass, of panic, I could list them on and on and on. And every time i talk to farmers, i will say, yeah, but that's a waste of time. There is a wonderful book of research, the only one I've found so far, put out by the University of South Australia. And I'm very, very sorry, I forgot to write it down, so I'll send it through on email. Um, It took a lot of finding, scouring the internet. Five years of research on 20 species of native grasses as to their nutritional value for herbivores. I have never read anything like it. Normally, to read something like that would send me to sleep with a page. I actually stayed up all night and read table after table <laughs> because it looked at all the micronutrients that are in a grass that we would go, oh, what a waste of time. Corkscrew grass, God, it contaminates the fleece, does this, does that. The micronutrients, the zinc, the selenium, I could list all of the micronutrients that were found in grasses like that, which we really need as mulch to go back on the ground to restore the mineral balance in the soil. It's all being discredited. All being, hat's useless. doesn't fatten them quickly, get rid of it. Anyway, I'm going on, but I hope you get it. Other things that make these grasses so adaptive to change is they depend not only on breeding sexually and producing seed, but they also have an amazing tillering system with buds just below the surface of the soil that allow them to withstand uh, most bushfires, not the horrible, intense fires that we talked about this morning, but just a bit less than that. Some of the first plants you will see returning will be the native grasses because of this ability to send out tillers uh, under catastrophic things like fire. They also produce stolons and rhizomes that allow them to go through the soil, and microlean is a very good example of that. They also have incredibly long dormancy periods in their seed if the seed falls to the ground and it doesn't germinate because conditions aren't right had, in some of the, l- the little bit of literature I've been able to find, some species of wallaby grass are known to remain viable in the soil for up to 30 years. Wow. Now, that is on par with our friend Serrated Tussock and African <laughs> <actually> Lovegrass, <it. laughs> okay? So there is a competitive advantage, but they are, because they're not a colonising species like most weed species are, they don't take every opportunity to germinate like a serrated tussock wood or an African lovegrass seed would, and consequently they're outcompeted but we found that their their viability in the soil lasts for a very long time another thing that is absolutely fascinating is you have a which i wish i had one here to show you a great big tussock of native grass many stems all flowering and all being pollinated those flowers (laughs) seed start to ripen at different rates. So if you are harvesting the seed, when you harvest, let's say, that that patch of whatever it is, you will know that some of that seed is not ripe yet, although some of it is so ripe it's falling off. What is the adaptive advantage of that? Huge! Because you're not losing all your seeds in one fall, into, a, into an environment where they may be taken away, not germinated, lost, or whatever. You're kind of playing your cards depending on the environmental conditions at the time. The, the seeds, as I say, ripen over periods of weeks. If the conditions are good, they will flower many times in a season. This year, because it's so late for the frost to come, the microlean of the weeping grass is into its fourth flowering in some places with ripe seed. How good is that? Do we let that seed fall in our, in our pastures? No. We graze, and we graze, and we graze, so that we the soil bank of the native grass and native pasture seed is often not there when a catastrophe arrives like a fire. I mean, hopefully it will be. Anyway, I'll get to that in a moment. Talked about the C3 and the C4 grasses, a really healthy vibrant, resilient, adaptive native pasture paddock must include C3 and C4. But one of the difficulties the farming community faced with this sort of information is, well, the only two grasses any good to fatten my stock are weeping grass and wallaby grass, and they're both C3 grasses. And I'm not having any of that rotten kangaroo grass and red grass and so on. Okay. Uh, What happens is you then have your exotic grasses coming into the end of summer, they can't cope with the heat, they can't cope with the dryness, and they die. And, And they are high fire risk. Whereas if they had allowed our C4 grasses to remain, I would hope that this would be confirmed by some of the fire studies. And again, I'm not talking catastrophic wildfire, a bit less intense than that. But the green, of a C4 pasture, a native pasture, often slows a fire down dramatically in summertime. Whereas a pasture of phalaris, ryegrass, cocksfoot, whatever we grow in this region, is just all dead stalks and the fire races through it. So that's one other advantage of the resilience of these species. Another thing that's really important in their ability to adapt is they don't require anything from us. In terms of inputs, they don't need fertilizers particularly. They don't, in fact, some of them will die with them. They don't need any of those things. They will just happily do what they do uh, if we allow them to do that. So I'll just go through some more of these slides. That's a, a picture of, as I said, a red ant wallaby grass with some corkscrew and other wallaby grasses. That sort of hillside is seen as very, very scrappy in the ACT. Sadly, I've been to many people wanting to subdivide their land in this region and wanting to put houses on. First thing they want to get rid of is that. Um, Red-anthed wallaby grass is just seen as a complete waste of time. Where they grow is on slopes of the most extraordinary skeleton soil, very rocky, no fertility, pH of about 4, highly saline. Why would you get rid of them? They have adapted. They are growing in conditions which might increase with climate change. Uh, that's uh, yeah, wallaby grass, wire grass, spear grass. Spear grass is considered a complete and utter waste of time. That ground is covered. You can see a rock in the front. That was bare rock originally. Bare, rocky ground blowing the dust in any windstorm. It's now completely covered with a nice little sprinkle of the exotic cats here in it as well. And we haven't talked, or I haven't talked at all, about the resilience of riparian areas. And I think one of the most important grass species of riparian areas is the poa lab. I'm not going to say the whole word, because I can never, ever say it properly. So I'll just call it river poa Hope you all know what I'm talking about. It's embarrassing. I always get my tongue t- caught around the species name. Right? Um, I have been to so many farms and so many places where people thought, hey, this is the best soil, alluvial, deep,
0: get rid of that
1: rubbish, and plowed it out, dug it out, poisoned it out, burned it out, done everything they possibly can to get rid of it. What happens? Of course, erosion, straight away erosion, and what I love is it comes back because it's put so much seed in the soil that no matter how bare it, that people have tried to make that ground, generally it will come back. Poetusset at the edges of water, where the roots are completely inundated year-round, then you go into the watercourse, and although they're not part of the native pasture, necessarily, good old bulrush and the creating a bit of a choke point, naturally, in a flowing body of water. They are also highly resistant to environmental change and highly resilient. That's just a picture of um, microlena and red grass. I I often used to get down uh, at ground level and walk alongside a cow chewing just to see what they actually chewed. And I know it sounds extraordinary silly, and it was. But gee, I learned a lot. And they they would, so that was on my hands and knees next to a cow walking, going, and uh, you can see that, so there's a C4 grass, the red grass, which is, uh, you can see this one here, you can see a bit of the red tinge in the stem. Uh, there's lots of microlina, there's a little bit of exotic clover come in there, but not a lot, and there's a few of the, um, the naturalised clovers as well. And that is uh, weeping grass, for those who don't really know it. You can see what a great sward that makes across the ground. Weeping grass is also extraordinarily nutritious, so it is something you can push to farmers, but it's also a great C3 grass, highly resistant to environmental change and resilient to it, that will also choke out weeds. And it's one of the easier grasses to sow and to get to germinate and grow. I realize that I've only got a little bit of time left, and of course there's always much more to say than there is time. Uh, What I think, I I was going to talk about the extraordinary advantages and uh, I suppose the environmental services that native pastures offer all of us. But I think that most of you here know all that. So what I think would be more I'd like to say in closing would be to say how shocked I've been in the last 20 years of working with um, collecting these seeds and trying to grow them is how little knowledge there is, and how little either anecdotal, on ground, or written. And one of the things, for example, because we ran a seed business, we needed to be able to ensure the viability of our seed. So one of the things we would do would be to send it to a laboratory in Melbourne to get them to check the viability. And we would get, initially, in the early days, get results back saying, no, nothing generated, nothing generated, nothing doing go. But it's germinated in the paddock. What's going on? And it was nobody's fault. The, the people who, the only seed uh, seed testing laboratory in Australia that we could get to, had never tested native seed. So they were still pouring on all the solutions of, anti- of fungicides and um, pesticides into the seed, um, stuff to break the, the seed cover. None of that helped the native seed. They didn't need any of that. It killed them. And so we worked together to try and simulate what the environment would be offering, to try and have the right temperature, to try not to have too much moisture. And then we started to get fantastic germination rates. So that was one thing. Nobody knew in the last 20 years. A second thing is, if you collect the seed, how do you store it? How long does it last? Um, should the seed be collected on the stems and then laid down further where you want them to germinate because the stems will create some degree of mulch and microclimate for the seed to find the right conditions to germinate. There are so much unknown, so I guess to say at the end of this talk about adaptation to climate change is the dearth of knowledge, the dearth of experience in something as critical as the ground cover for the entire region, the grasses and their associated forms, to me, the sooner that we start working on that and understanding it and being able to sell the message and get it out to the farming community as well, the better. I think I'll probably leave it there. <laughs> Thank you. very much. Uh, we've got five
0: minutes for questions. How can we get this information through to the bulk of farmers? You know,
1: what avenues are we trying, or can we try? I, I can only speak from my own experience. I'm afraid I'm a little bit ignorant of that. Um, there are, I, I find that local land services, Landcare ACT, many of those bodies are actively running workshops all the time to try and educate the local land, rural landholders. Um, and certainly, there are workshops being run all over um, the state. But with I better not get too political here, so I'll keep my mouth shut. But there is a lack of funding. I'll just leave it at that. Uh, And there is also a real push uh, for uh, uh, high-production agriculture has come back. That real push to get rid of uh, native pastures and replace them with high-production pastures uh, is really in full swing at the moment. But, but obviously the I can't praise highly enough ACT Landcare, surrounding Landcare groups, and uh, the LLS bodies are all around the ACT, out at Yass, Golden, Braidwood, or Monero. They really do run a lot of courses. Yeah, you
0: know, the uh, people out of the Land Institute in Kansas in the US have been spending 40 years trying to develop uh, perennial grasses for human consumption. Uh, they've been doing a lot of work on developing yep. uh, perennial grasses for a lot of really good reasons. Yes. Uh, You're saying that we have a whole bunch of these here already. Yep. Uh, Are they good for eating?
1: Okay, that's a wonderful question, and that was one of the many things I was going to go on with uh, when I realised I was running out of time. There is some research going on in Victoria at the moment and has been ongoing now for about 15 years to the production of weeping grass as Australian rice. Uh, It it doesn't have gluten, blah, 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 all that stuff. But the the problem, the real problem, was one of its resilient characteristics. And that is all the seed doesn't ripen at the same time. So if you want to make a commercial business out of the grain, you know that you've got to put your harvesting machine over it and get all that ripe seed. So that's something they're working on. Also, um, panicum, hairy panicum, uh, is actually, you would not believe it, but it is one of the highest protein grains in the world. Wow. And indigenous people used to make damper out of it. That tiny little grain that you see blown up on stalks against everyone's fences and garages at the end of summer uh, should is almost definitely a little bit of research is being done on making that into a food. And the third species is the Australian millet. Um, which is also being trialled to be made into a saleable food, grain food. Yeah. You mentioned that the early
0: farmers, graziers, whatever, found that the native pastures wouldn't fatten their cattle. <laughs> <laughs> is that the full story, or? OK. I'm okay. just
1: <coughs> questioning your indication for this now. Mm -hmm. I should should qualify what I said. I tend to get a bit carried away. And um, the early graziers used to talk of the native grasses being the engine room of Australian agriculture. So the first 80 to 100 years, and with the incredible wealth that we made from wool, it was all of native pasture. But once we started trying to fatten animals quickly for market, we found that uh, if you put a paddock of lucerne or some high-protein feed, that would fatten an animal more quickly than the slower fattening process of native grasses at the time. And it was also... I don't know whether, as humans, we always think the grass is greener on the other side. So somebody comes on and says, bam, this is she wow, just should see it. You know, so everyone goes, oh, yeah, wow, should have seen what I got for that carcass of the, or you know, whatever. Um, and so it's more the last... This last century, where a lot of the native pasture has been destroyed. Yeah, I hope that answers your question. Yeah. Do we need a different uh,
0: grazing system? Do we need to change our pattern for grazing for native grazing?
1: Okay, I, I know that we're. I, I don't want to use up any more time. There are many, 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 many farmers. I cannot say. I personally think there would be 30 to 40 percent of all farmers are now changing their grazing management systems. They are trying to look at sustainability into climate change. How can we do it so we don't get bare ground when the next drought hits, when the fire comes through, whatever. So there is a big change underway. It isn't across all farming, but it is a really big change of, of the sort that I imagine everybody here would see as highly adaptive to climate change in the future.